the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Today, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hi, everybody. And one of the attorneys at our office, Adriana Lima. Hello. Okay, so for those of you who don't know the show, the first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going to court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, usually trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about different events, politics, history, religion. We are going to be talking politics tonight with Michelle Malkin. But we're also going to be talking about an unusual event in American history, the mass shooting in Las Vegas on October 1st, 2017. And until we started preparing for the show, I didn't realize it's been two years since the Las Vegas shootings. Unbelievable, I know. Yeah, it just, it's, it's you know, more than two years ago. And we're going to be talking to Dr. Kevin Menace, who was there that night, who was in charge of the emergency room, and it's really an incredible story. I guess let's get back to estate planning. Adriana, what what question do you have there? So the question that I have are, are prenup agreements enforceable? Well, the, the short and quick answer is yes. Now, you still have to be a little careful about that because the couple of times I've seen prenuptial agreements attacked was, let's say, the person signing the prenuptial agreement wasn't English, was not their first language, or maybe they weren't fluent in English. And, you know, like one time I remember one lady was saying, well, my husband said I I had to sign this to get married, to apply for my green card, and I didn't know what I was signing, and nobody explained it to me. Even in that case, the prenuptial agreement was upheld. So yes, they do work, but you do have to be careful. You have to take precautions. The same lawyer should not advise both sides to the to the marriage. They should have their own independent, separate lawyers. I'm not saying it has to be fair. It depends on the circumstances, but there should be some there should be something for both of them, both members of the couple in, in the marriage. But yes, prenuptial agreements can be very important because let's say for the sake of argument, in one of the true senses, let's say we have marriage, second marriage, we have children from two different marriages. The wife has children from her previous marriage. The husband has children from his his previous marriage, and we want clear lines so that after they're gone, there's not chaos, they're not fighting with each other. And sometimes there really is a very good reason for a prenuptial agreement. You got to be careful, but yes, they are enforceable. Beth, you ha- you've got a question. I have a good one. I keep hearing about reverse mortgages on the radio. 
can you please tell me about this and if it's something I should consider? My wife and I are both seniors and we have no children and we need help paying our bills. Please advise. Lenny from Brooklyn. Yeah, in that in that case, Lenny, I would seriously think about a reverse mortgage. And, and by the way, if any of you are thinking about a reverse mortgage, I encourage you to call Frank Melia at 516-208-4238. 516-208-4238. Now, what's a reverse mortgage? Basically, if you're a senior citizen, you, you know, a lender and, you know, they're insured, makes you a loan, which you do not have to pay back until you sell your house or until you pass away and your heirs have to sell the house. Now, what's the advantage of it? Well, you know, if you took a conventional loan, home equity line of credit, if you didn't pay that line of credit, if you didn't pay that loan back, you'd lose your house. Reverse mortgage, you're not going to lose your house. And even if, let's say, if your house is worth $500,000 and you, you originally borrowed 350000 or whatever the number is, and by the time the interest and everything is paid, it's worth more than your house, they still can't force you to leave your house. The reverse mortgage company has insurance to cover those losses, but you don't lose your house if you don't make your mortgage payments. And it can be a very good tool for those people who have a fair amount of equity in their house and... You know, they don't have the income to make men ends meet. The other side, some people say, well, I'm not going to sign a reverse mortgage because my children are going to lose the house when I'm gone. Well, that's not necessarily so. The loan gets paid back after you're gone. If you got a million-dollar house and you borrow $100,000, the children are not going to lose the house. Yes, they may have to pay $200,000 back after you're gone, but they're not going to lose the house. Yeah, if you if you have a $500,000 house and you live forever and you got a $300,000 loan, it's possible by the time you pass away, the loan may be equal to the, the amount of the value of the house, but usually that doesn't happen because if you're fortunate enough to live in the New York area, real estate has a tendency to go up, and usually that covers the reverse mortgage. Reverse mortgage, the interest rate is a little bit more expensive than if you got a regular loan, but again, if you borrow money on a reverse mortgage, you've seen a citizen, you need the money, whether you take it in a lump sum, whether you take it as a home equity line of credit, or whether you get monthly payments, you don't have to pay the loan back until after you're gone or until you sell the house. And for some people, it's a very good tool. And again, if you want to learn more about a reverse mortgage, give our sponsor, Frank Millia, a call at 516-208-4238. 516-208-4238. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Here I am. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. When a desperate parent calls YCS seeking help for their child with special needs, 
We are there to answer the call. Our staff provides compassionate care to children affected by trauma, autism, or developmental disabilities. Can you help us provide the services needed to keep families together? Find out how you, your company, or organization can volunteer. Learn more at YCS.org. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Each week, Kevin McCullough on Thursdays in this 5 o'clock hour, he gets a question that gets sent to us off the email, a state planning question, and he asks that question so we can you know, educate his audience. And so let's hear Kevin McCullough. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every week, I promise you, you'll get a question answered from Mike Connors of Connors and Sullivan, the king in the New York tri-state area when it comes to understanding estate care and elder law. Nobody does it better than Connors and Sullivan. That's why you need to call them at 718-238-6500. But uh, Martha has sent in this question for Mike this week. It says, uh, Mr. Connors, I live in NYC with my domestic partner. We've registered with City Hall. We've lived together for over 10 years. Do I need a will? Do I really need a will? Mike Connors. Well, yes, because if you're a domestic partner, you're not related under New York state law. So if, if you don't have a will, the person who's your domestic partner has no relation to you after you're gone. So assuming you want to make that domestic partner your executor, the person in charge, you need a will. If you want to leave any assets to that person, uh, you know, you might have joint bank accounts, things like that. But if you, if you want to give them legal protective rights... You need a will. If you want them to be able to take care of your funeral, you should have a will. It makes sense. And, friends, maybe you've got questions about uh, this or other matters related to estate, uh, estate care and elder law. There's no one uh, more capable, more credentialed to deal with it than Connors and Sullivan. And so uh, get, be in touch with them today, 718-238-6500. I've used them. They have helped us understand our end-of-life planning. And uh, in the McCullough household, that's a, that's a busy thing because of our, uh, the ages of our kids. 718-238-6500. Call them today, 718-238-6500. And if you'd like to get a question answered, you can do that by sending it to askmikeconnors at gmail.com, askmikeconnors at gmail.com, and then be listening to this show every Thursday or to Mike's own show, Ask the Lawyer, coming up on uh, Saturday mornings at 8 on AM 570, The Mission, and Sunday mornings at 11 on AM 970, The Answer. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks again, Kevin. You can listen to Kevin McCullough Monday through Friday on 570 The Mission at 3 o'clock and Monday through Friday at 5 o'clock on 970 The Answer. He has an extended hour on Wednesdays doing his one-hour shot with John Katz and Matides. Again, today we have Beth, my wife Beth, and Adriana. Adriana, which office are you primarily in? I am primarily, I think, in all of the offices. <laughs> Uh, our main location is in Brooklyn, but I, I'm also heavily in our Manhattan office, Middle Village, Bayside, and on occasion, Staten Island. Okay, and wh- what's your background? Where'd you go to law school? Where'd you grow up? Sure. So I, uh, I was born in Mexico. I grew up in Sunset Park here in Brooklyn. Um, I've been there pretty much all my life. I went to school at CUNY Law School. At the time, it was over in Flushing. It has since moved to Long Island City. I'm a big Yankee fan. No. <laughs> uh oh, you're not being a Yankee fan is irrelevant. It keeps things interesting with Mr. Connors. Yeah, well. <laughs> oh goodness. You know that that reminds us. You know when we're talking 
Lawrence Tierney, great movie actor, whatever. He was from St. Michael's. <laughs> ah, yes, that is my parish, St. Michael's. Right, so he grew up in St. Michael's. And his brother went to St. Michael's High School, but he went to boys' high school. Mm. And Lawrence Tierney, for those who remember, 1947, Dillinger, 1992, Reservoir Dogs, and a lot of shows in between. A lot of arrests, a lot of fights, a lot of interesting stories <laughs> inside those well, 50 years. Well, your daddy years. knew him. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, they tended bar at the same place in the, in the early 50s. Because oh. Lawrence Tierney, he would get acting jobs, and he would do fairly well, and he was on his way up. Then he'd get in a fight with somebody, get arrested, get fired, and then he'd have to attend bar or drive a... Aww. You know, one one of those horse drawn carriages and stuff like that. So but he was he was he grew up in St. Michael's. So, you know, <laughs> next parish over from where we are in uh, in, in Bay Ridge. Well, where, Cousin Thomas, did he go to school there? The high school when St. Michael's, that's the predecessor of Severian it was St. Michael's in the 40s. OK, OK. Tonight or today, I should say, we're going to have on Michelle Malkin talking about immigration and we're going to have. Dr. Kevin Menace talking about October 1st, 2017, which was one of the most tragic days in American history. It was one day when we had the most uh, casualties, I think, in, in a very long time. And Dr. Kevin was a hero of that night. I'll tell you what, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in a few minutes. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death, and it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. 
time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. Our next guest is one of the most remarkable interviews that I've ever done. You know, if you go back, we're, we're cutting back. October 1st, 2017, just about two years ago, was the Las Vegas shootings. We're going to be talking to Dr. Kevin Menace, who was the doctor on call in charge of the emergency room uh, on that night. And, and it's really an incredible interview. That's what's up next on the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. I just remember, though, everything coming over the news and how many people, you know, at first, what's happening, what's happening, then one afternoon, when you find out the, found out the final numbers, it was just, uh, and you know, and Las Vegas is not really that large. So to have to come together as a community to get them, get them to the hospitals, get them safe, and 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 you know, attend to their wounds. What a nightmare! All right, so here's Dr. Kevin Menace, October first. 2017, one of the most tragic days in, in U.S. history. And our next guest was there, Dr. Kevin Menace. Welcome to Connor's Corner. Hi, thank you for having me. Okay, so where were you on October 1st, 2017? Well, I wasn't at the scene. I was uh, at the hospital uh, just doing my normal work day, uh, and, uh, which I was at the ER that day. Okay, now where this is Las Vegas. This is in Las Vegas, correct. Okay, so what was the first thing you heard that alerted you that something was wrong? They had called me overhead to the uh, uh, radio, and uh, when I got to the radio, the first uh, uh, transmission that had gone across was prepare for mass casualty. And at that time, um, there was no other real details about what was going on. Uh, and I turned around and there happened to be a police officer who was standing right behind me uh, for some unrelated uh, incident. And uh, he was looking down at his radio and taking a communication. And uh, just at that moment when he finished, uh, I looked at him and I asked him, hey, is this real? And he said, yeah, man. And uh, that's when I knew uh, that, you know, we were going to get something exactly what the details were. I wasn't sure yet, but I knew that um, something had just happened. Um, and, uh, you know, as an ER doctor, one of the biggest things or probably the most scariest thing you can have coming to the ER isn't just, you know, a gunshot wound or a heart attack or somebody who, you know, had a cardiac arrest. I mean, these are things that we deal with every single day. Uh, but mass casualties are the things that are um, in every ER doctor's nightmare. And uh, it's because there isn't just one patient that you're responsible for. It's, you know, X number of patients. And that X could be, you know, a couple dozen or a couple hundred like what we had. And so, um, you know, knowing that this was a mass casualty that was coming in and not really knowing the numbers, um, you know, that really starts to, uh, uh, make you start to think, uh, what, what can you do to be ready? And so, you know, at the time or uh, before that I had been, you know, considering how I would handle something like this, if it ever happened to come to my ER, uh, we are only two blocks away from the strip. 
you know, um, everyone, it's no secret that uh, Las Vegas, as well as many other uh, uh, large cities in the United States have a number of terrorist targets. And so it wasn't just a matter of if it was going to happen. It was a matter of when it would happen. So over the years, I'd started to think, you know, what would I do if 10 or 15, 50 or 100 or hundreds of patients came in after, you know, uh, being part of a sort of attack or something uh, like a chemical attack or, uh, you know, uh, a shooting? What would you do if uh, all of these patients happened to come to your ER? Because as ER doctors, um, uh, we feel responsible for whatever comes into our ER. And so it was something that I, I had thought about over the years because I was terrified about not being able to uh, save all of those p- patients if they had come. Um, so that was kind of, you know, my first sort of indication of uh, what was going to happen that night was just that, you know, a police officer and the uh, initial radio uh, traffic that had come our way. Now, how big is your hospital? How big is the emergency room? How many staff was there? Um, I think we had about 20 plus uh, nurses and four ER doctors, which is, um, you know, it's it's big, but, uh, you know, not large enough to handle, you know, uh, a couple hundred uh, victims. I mean, um, typically on a normal, busy night, at any inner city hospital over the country, you may get two, three, four, you know, maybe five gunshot wounds in a night shift. And that would be considered, you know, busy. Um, And, uh, you know, in a mass casualty, that number is magnified by, you know, much more than that. And so the normal hectic, uh, scene that you would have in a typical gunshot wound, you would have to multiply that times hundreds. And that scene would be played out over the entire real estate of our ER that night. So let me ask you, okay, you found out, be prepared for mass casualties. What's What happened next? The first uh, part in the plan was to get uh, the operating rooms rolling uh, as soon as possible because uh, it's not uh, within budget to keep uh, your ER, or I'm sorry, your operating rooms fully stocked uh, with staff and running all night. Uh, that would cost way too much money. So typically, you'll have uh, you know one team working and maybe another team on call, but that's never enough to uh, handle what would happen if you had multiple gunshot wounds. So. Um, I knew that as ER doctors, we could stabilize these patients, but the issue would be downstream if we didn't get them out of our emergency department and into the operating room where, you know, the real magic happens because what we do in the ER is just stabilize them uh, and resuscitate them. But in the operating room, that's when they uh, can stop the bleeding or, you know, fix a lot of these uh, internal injuries. And so, um, if we can get them to that next step, the chances of survival of each of these patients would be so much more. And so um, the first step that uh, I had done that night was to get those operating rooms open. I had gone to the secretaries and I told them, call um, 
every surgeon, get every um, operating nurse, uh, room nurse here, get me every anesthesiologist, just get every single one of these operating rooms open. And so our two secretaries, um, you know, got on the phones and started calling everybody to try to get uh, the operating rooms fully staffed. And they were able to do that in such a uh, quick manner that uh, well, that's, you know, the biggest key, uh, I think, that night in order uh, that ended up saving a lot of lives. Because, again, we were able to stabilize these patients. And instead of them sitting in our ER, they were able to whisk them away and get them to the operating room so that they can save their lives. How many patients entered your, you know, your ER that night? Um, officially? Uh, 214 by officially that is, um, you know, they were able to get insurance information and, you know, ID cards from these patients, but there, um, I've heard estimates anywhere from 50 to hundred plus more patients that had come into the ER that, that we treated for through and through gunshot wounds to the extremities that didn't hit anything major, um, that we were able to. You know, basically with those uh, injuries, um, it's pretty much cleaning the wound, giving them antibiotics, instructing them on what to look out for, and then sending them on their way. So um, we had two PAs on with us that night, too. And what I had told them was if it missed any of the bones and it missed any of the arteries, uh, to give them a tetanus if they needed antibiotics, clean the wounds, pain medicine, and get them out of the ER as soon as possible because uh, we needed the real estate in order to um, uh, take more critical uh, gunshot victims in. And so um, the real number is much higher than that uh, official number, but you know, there's no official count on that uh, actual number. How many of these patients had like serious wounds, life-threatening wounds? I believe they ended up admitting over 100. So all of those patients had serious or life-threatening wounds. So, um, yeah, a significant number of them did. I hate to ask this question, but of the hundreds of people that walked into your emergency room, how many of them survived? So that night, we ended up having 16 that died. Uh, But uh, of those uh, people who died that night, 10 of them were actual uh, patients who came in um, uh, dead on arrival. And then there were four other patients who uh, we in the ER had stabilized. And then um, we handed them off to the trauma surgeons. And the trauma surgeons at that point uh, decided that their wounds would not be survivable. And um, uh, they withdrew care on the patients then uh, because they were just, uh, for example, just putting too much blood out of the chest tubes, and so they had uh, significant uh, chest trauma. And then one died in the operating room, and one died um, a few days later when it was found that uh, they were brain dead and the family withdrew care. But out of those, you know, that entire number of uh, 16, um, if you really look at it um, as an ER team, we didn't lose a single patient uh, that hadn't. Uh, all you know had come to the ER. We uh, were able to stabilize everybody who had come in, even though there were not enough of us to actually um, handle that kind of number. How you said you were mentally prepared? What would you 
tell somebody else, an emergency room doctor in another city, in another place? How do you mentally prepare for this? Well, in, uh, in medicine, we have, um, when we look at cases, um, the way that it's sort of taught is you have your horses, your zebras, and then your unicorns. So horses are things that you see pretty much every day. Um, they're, they're commonplace. Zebras are these kind of cases that, um, um, you know, you hear about, they're probably, you're probably going to get one or two, uh, maybe three or so in your career. And then there are these unicorn cases or cases that, you know, are sort of mythical and may never happen. You may see one in your entire career or you may not, but, uh, it, you know, those, those type of cases, despite the fact that you may not have uh, to experience it in your career, it still doesn't change the fact that you as an ER doctor, if it happened to come into your ER, you're still responsible for, uh, for that care. So, you know, over the years, taking care of uh, all the horses and zebras um, was something that uh, over time became, you know, much more comfortable and easy. And, you know, wanting to challenge myself and thinking about, um, you know, the unicorn type cases, um, mass casualties were, was that sort of unicorn that, uh, uh, you know, I had learned about in my training. Um, but, uh, and, and I knew that everybody, even the most veteran ER doctors, uh, my, my heroes, uh, were, were terrified of, uh, having to, um, uh, to deal with. And so, I, you know, I knew what the system was or how it was taught, but um, looking at it from uh, my perspective, I, I knew that I didn't think it was you know, it was going to work the way that it was taught because uh, the the way that the system is is planned for, you allow EMS to uh, sort of filter the patients and slowly bring them to you, and if you do that, then it'll sort of slow down the flow of patients coming to the ER. And uh, if that's the case, then your chances of being overwhelmed and your chances of, you know, being able to do everything uh, are going to be better. But that's a, an assumption, you know, that you assume that everything is going to sort of work that way. And I think that's the best case scenario that uh, EMS would be able to, you know, slow down the flow coming to your hospital. But if you look at sort of the worst case scenario that could happen, which would be that um, uh, bystanders or police would scoop the patients up from the scene and bring them to the hospital before EMS could even set up, then what you end up with is a massive number of patients that come into your ER in an extremely short amount of time. And then what would you do then to try to sort all that? You know, try to keep your head above water. And I mean, it isn't just you being able to handle it because really, if you can't handle these patients, then who will? And really what ends up happening is they just die inside your ER. And so some, something like that was something that I thought about over the years. And I thought, well, if something like that happened, how can you sort this out so you could potentially save not just, you know, the most possible but save everybody uh, that came to your ER. And so that became sort of a thought process that I had gone through. And again, you know, this is a unicorn type case. It's not like you can go and uh, line up a bunch of people and hurt them and then 
study to see what works the best. I mean, you'll have to play these sort of scenarios out in your head and then look at them and, and try to make a judgment call on uh, what would be uh, a way that you can handle this sort of uh, deluge of patients. And so um, from a sort of, um, uh, from a standpoint of a uh, just sort of process, not thinking about the medicine itself, but just sort of moving patients through the system, um, I started looking, uh, the way that they, we talked about it in, in medicine was, again, EMS would slow down the flow, and then they'd only give you as many as you can handle, and then you wouldn't get overwhelmed. But again, if they're not bringing them to you, they're dying on the scene. Uh, so instead of looking at medicine because of how well we had been talking about it, I looked elsewhere. And if you look at, um, you know, a fast food uh, line, such as like Chick-fil-A, take for example, Chick-fil-A, right? When Chick-fil-A uh, has a normal lunch crowd, um, they do things in order to try to get pay, uh, the uh, patrons through faster. And so that was those type of systems that, that I see, or like when you go to Disneyland and you see that they split up the lines just so that they can move the lines a bit faster or load up all the different slots inside the roller coaster a bit faster. Those are things that I, I looked at uh, to try to set up a system that can move patients through quickly. And then we were able to do the medicine on the other end. And so that's how we ended up approaching it that night. We were more of a, um, we worked more of a system to try to handle a massive uh, number of patients instead of, you know, doing the old presumed route, which is AEMS is going to slow it down for us. If we can't handle it, we'll tell them to stop bringing patients and, you know, we'll, we'll go from there. And, uh, you know, that, again, I think that that's sort of the old way of doing things. And unfortunately, that's how, you know, unfortunately, if you don't take care of them, then nobody will. And then somebody is going to end up dying because of that. So, you know, that's, that's kind of the uh, sort of system that we had set up that night. Now, how many hours did you work? You know, how, how long before you were able to take a real break? I, the first patients came in at 1024. And I didn't stop till about 5.30, so seven hours is uh, how long we were going for. But, you know, the first one and a half to two hours, we, the ER uh, doctors were alone. I mean, we didn't have other ER doctors who had come in yet. We were, they were still uh, working their way to get to us. And so we, you know, that initial golden hour of uh, where a trauma patient comes in, where you, you know, you're going to be able to save their life. We ended up running the golden hour with just the four ER docs who we had that night. And so that was where it was. Um, uh, I think that was the probably the scariest time I've ever uh, experienced in my entire life to see this many patients, knowing we only had so many uh, guys to resuscitate uh, these victims and wondering if we were going to, you know, if these patients were going to make it through on the other end. But, you know, the more I worked and more of the other guys worked, I wasn't, you know, pronouncing people dead. I was, you know, we were all saving their lives and then just sort of handing them off to surgery to go do their, uh, to uh, work their magic. And so 
it, it became this uh, sort of uh, dance where we would do our part, hand them off to the next person, and they would do their part. And, you know, we just slowly started to pick at, uh, you know, all the patients, and eventually we were able to stabilize everybody. Do you have any final thought to give the, you know, to tell the audience? And God bless you for what you guys did that night. I mean, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here just awestruck. Thank you for that work. But you have anything to tell the audience or anything at all to about that night that you remember? You know, the, the one thing I remember the most is the, um, the victims that night. Um, those were some of the most um, amazing patients I have ever taken care of. Um, I remember uh, when I was out in triage and these patients were coming in, it was car after car after car after car, and they were, um, you know, filled with four or five uh patients per car uh and then the pickup trucks would come and there were maybe 15 or 20 and i remember as i would go up to the pickup trucks thinking man how am i going to triage all these patients i would get up onto the bed i'd look inside and they would say doc doc no not me this one and they would pass the sickest patient up to me even though the people who were passing the patients up to me i could see that they had been shot themselves um, you know, instead of saying, take care of me first, they were more worried about the ones who had been injured first. And then I heard stories from a number of staff that night who there were patients who were shot in the stomach and they wanted to give up their bed for somebody else or somebody who, uh, you know, got shot in the leg and they said, this person looked worse than I did. And so they would sit on the floor and uh, let somebody else sit in the chair because again, we didn't have enough space for everybody. And so... Um, I can't uh, thank those patients enough for being that patient and that helpful because in all honesty, there's no way I don't have that many eyes to see that many people, but, um, uh, you know, with their, uh, help, um, and their patients, we were able to, uh, pull off, uh, you know, nothing short of, uh, you know, a small miracle that night. Thank you again, Dr. Kevin. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for relating these stories. All right. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for having me. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, if you're watching some of the Democratic debates, it seems like everybody is in favor of open borders. And I guess that's from the compassion of the left toward, you know, illegal immigrants. Is that so? Our next guest is author of Open Borders Incorporated, Michelle Malkin. Welcome to the show, Michelle. 
Thank you for having me. What is the motivation behind all the Democrats saying we need open borders? I think it's multi-level. I think that there is an electoral imperative to bring in as many foreigners into the country, grant them amnesty, and then secure a permanent ruling majority for the Democrat Party. And if you look at demographics, if you, if you look at how red states have turned purple and then blue, uh, they're achieving their goals. There's also an ideological imperative. Um, many of the leading Democratic presidential candidates have called explicitly for abolishing ICE and not replacing it with anything because they don't believe in American sovereignty. They don't want our immigration laws enforced at the borders or in the interior. And then there are financial imperatives as well. And that's what Open Borders Inc. is about. It's about many of these Democrat satellite groups, tax-exempt nonprofits uh, that agitate in the name of compassion while they're collecting money, not only from left-wing billionaires and left-wing philanthropy, but also from taxpayer funding itself. Can you give an example of that? Sure. Casa de Maryland is a Soros-funded group uh, in the sanctuary state of Maryland, operating in Montgomery County, Maryland, where I used to live, and uh, is also a nonprofit that gets tax subsidies to lobby very aggressively for everything from illegal alien driver's licenses to in-state tuition discounts uh, to mass blanket pardon amnesties, whether it was under the Bush administration or the administrative fiat, the executive orders that were accomplished by uh, President Obama. And currently, they uh, support members of the Montgomery County Council who have uh, issued an executive order blocking federal immigration agents from communicating with local and state law enforcement authorities to prevent illegal alien crime uh, in that county, which has made national news because there are now 10 illegal alien rape suspects who had gone through the revolving door uh, in large part because of this inability to communicate between federal and local and state authorities about immigration status that have terrorized uh, the neighborhood and the state. And it's not just law-abiding citizens and legal immigrants who suffer, but obviously members of the illegal alien migrant community itself. Let's take a step back. You said Soros funded. A lot of people, yes, they know who George Soros is, but a lot of people, I think, they don't know who George Soros is. And what is he funding and what's his motivation? Sure. Um, well, I have an entire chapter on George Soros, who I call the CEO of Open Borders, Inc. He's a hedge fund manager who achieved $25.2 billion of net worth through financial um, activities across uh, the world. 18 billion of that he announced he would funnel into a network of foundations. And these are the Open Society Institute and Open Society Foundations. His explicit ideological agenda is subverting the sovereignty of Western and industrialized nations in favor of global governance. And that's not just some sort of conspiracy theory. He wrote a book called The Case of Global Governance, from which I quote, where he talks about sovereignty being a, quote-unquote, obstacle to his larger goals. What are we talking about when we talk about global governance? Well, it's the idea that the United Nations should determine how many people uh, come into our country, where they should come from, and what traits they should bring. We've got the United Nations General Assembly now meeting uh, in New York, as they do every year, and the kinds of, of compacts and uh, policy papers that they write um, are things that have no input from Americans. And local control, of course, is one of the most precious principles uh, of governance in America. And it's exactly uh, that uh, kind of authority that uh, George Soros and, and uh, the United Nations are, are trying to undermine. So I list nearly 400 
organizations, many of them either directly or indirectly subsidized by George Soros, everyone from Media Matters to the American Civil Liberties Union to the Council on American-Islamic Relations to La Raza, which have lobbied very aggressively over the last 30 years to block any measure of immigration enforcement in our country. As a Catholic, and I know you're a Catholic, I'm a Catholic, you have some disturbing comments to make about the leadership of the Catholic Church in the U.S. I do. I don't think my comments are disturbing. I think that the actions True. of the yeah. Vatican, the, the words of the Pope, uh, and the activities of many of these organizations that are funded by taxpayer dollars are truly disturbing. Because what they are doing is creating these irresistible magnets, these pull factors that induce uh, illegal alien members uh, of, and family members in particular to do incredibly reckless things paying coyotes to drag their children from Central America up the spine of Mexico into the interior of our country, risking their lives and their safety, uh, and then enriching drug cartels in the process, which collect billions of dollars uh, in uh, remittances and derecho de pisos, it's the premium surcharge to get uh, illegal aliens uh, over the last uh, bit of uh, the, the finish line across the border. And um, many people don't understand that when they put money into collection plates, that they are funding the illegal alien um, supporting agenda of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops and the Catholic Relief Services. I mean, we're under the illusion that when we do this, we're helping our neighbors, we're uh, helping to fight homelessness in our neighborhood, when in fact what we're doing is supporting a global human trafficking racket. What do you suggest we do about it? Well, I have an entire chapter at the end of the book on actions people can take in their own daily lives and starting small to defund Open Borders, Inc. And we can start by withholding money from all of the organizations that I name. And it's not just these um, Soros groups on the left. It's not just the Catholic Church and many other religious organizations for, 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 for that matter. It's also Hollywood. It's also people in the media that spread lies uh, and spread false narratives about what's actually going on on the border and the interior of the country. And then I think that we need to demand of elected officials that they, that they do what they can in their own power to defund Open Borders, Inc. In Europe, there are now um, you know, very ag aggressive and long-needed overdue measures to uh, defund many of these non-governmental organizations that are breaking laws. And clearly, we have laws on the book that uh, forbid aiding, adult, uh, abetting, sheltering, and harboring illegal immigration, let, al uh, let alone employing illegal aliens. And it's time we get serious about enforcing them. When you were preparing the book, when you writing the book, publishing the book, was there something you learned that surprised you? Yes, it did surprise me um, just how deep uh, the pockets are of uh, the Catholic Church. It also surprised me uh, how much uh, danger the refugee resettlement racket is causing uh, in this country. And I urge anyone to pick up the book, Open Borders Inc., who's funding America's destruction, and read the 10 appendices, one of which lists 60 of what I call refugee hotties. Refugee hotties are refugees who were brought into this country claiming religious, ethnic, political persecution, who then turned around and rewarded our gratitude, paid us back in gratitude, by plotting to stab, bomb, uh, and kill and mass the Americans who welcome them into their country. I kind of asked this question again, but the, you wrote the book to educate the public. What do you want the public to do? Well, um, uh, the measures that I uh, that I just stated, as well as getting off the sidelines. I don't just um, preach, but I practice what I preach. And uh, one of the things that has been most appalling to me is see, seeing the rise of the Abolish ICE movement, in large part funded by tax dollars and Soros groups. 
abolish ICE, Antifa, and sanctuary anarchists have specifically targeted ICE agents, 20,000 members of the federal uh, immigration and customs enforcement agency who are the guardians against immigration anarchy. We've seen death threats, doxing, harassment, bullying, uh, even in the pages of the New York Times op-ed section, uh, calling explicitly for ICE agents and their families to be targeted. So on my Sanctuary City tour, my book tour, uh, I am urging people to get up off the sidelines and to counter uh, this growing movement. And I've had three rallies that have turned out uh, thousands of people. And uh, I think that patriotism is a muscle that needs to be exercised. That includes civic engagement. And it's a lot easier to do that once you know the forces that you're up against uh, and following the money and finding the truth, which is the investigative imperative of this book. Now, you know, this is the radio. Some people may not know who you are. What is your background? Are you an immigrant to the United States? My parents are legal immigrants, naturalized Americans, proud and grateful to be so, who came to this country in 1970 from the Philippines. I am an unhyphenated American. I am out of the closet as a, a patriotic American who believes in, in full and strict immigration enforcement. I've been a journalist for more than 25 years, worked for two major metropolitan newspapers on the West Coast, founded two social media companies, and this is my seventh book, my longest book at nearly 500 pages and 1,600 footnotes. Okay, the name of the book, Open Borders Incorporated, the author, Michelle Malkin. Michelle, thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Thank you. Beth, one of the things, like listening to Michelle Malkin, it's amazing how many times George Soros's name comes up in our oh, different interviews. Because what was it, a couple of weeks ago that George Soros funded the uh, opposition to Brett Kavanaugh, and now he's funding yeah. illegal immigration and whatever. It's just like he's trying well, he, to do whatever he can to undermine oh, the, the system. He has he has these these companies all over the place so people don't even know it is Soros. Yeah, well. No, it's a mess. He pays like the Antifa and all those people. These people aren't just going out on their own. They're getting paid to do these things. They're getting paid to go out there and march and complain. So, um a lot i i'm still i really would like to know what it is he's after no. um if he's an ideologue if he's just an anarchist um but if you look into his history he's he's just an awful person the way he made his money bankrupting bankrupting countries now he's he's not a nice guy well in any event you know like Thank you again for Michelle Malkin for being on. Now, here's the thing. Michelle Malkin's parents are the Philippines. We have one attorney here who's born in the Philippines, but is he here today? No. He's off somewhere in the Philippines. <laughs> but he has a very good reason. He's in the, <laughs> exactly. He's in the Philippines. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Mr. Jose. In the Philippines. <laughs> okay, now, oh. social media, you know, like if you check our Facebook page or whatever, one of the things you can see, you can see a picture of Jerry Cooney with Mel Jose, you know, when they're priming off for their boxing match set in a couple of months. <laughs> but how how can they find that, Chris? Well, first off, uh, Jerry Cooney said that he wants to go a couple rounds with you. He said, uh, yeah, but so Mel when, when said this, he would do it for me. 
That's right. Well, uh, so this way, if Mel does the boxing match, you'll go to Ron Hunt's farm and he'll put you to work. That'll be perfect. Okay, so that's what's going to happen. Uh, on the other hand, if you want to uh, find out more about the Ask the Lawyer Facebook page and like us, if you haven't liked it already, go to the page, put a like on it. You can find out all the good things that are happening. Check out the Connors and Sullivan Twitter page, too. That's CNS Attorneys. That's at CNS Attorneys. You can find the picture with uh, Mel. Also, Michael Connors with uh, Jerry Cooney as well at the book signing. Does Otto have a Facebook page? No. You brought that up. <laughs> I think maybe we're going to have to work on that. Because, you know, Otto is with Mr. Connors whenever he can be. Yes. And he loves him very much. When Mr. Connors leaves in the morning, Otto runs to the front door and he sits. And he waits, and he's very sad. Mr. Connors leaves, and then Otto runs to the front window to watch him as Aww. he's leaving. Yes, I have it's witnessed very that. Sad. It is, but it's also very yes. cute because, you know, he knows that he's off for his day. He wishes him well, and he anxiously awaits his return. That's, no, that's in any event, exactly Otto doesn't right. communicate very well, so he's not getting a Facebook page on us. <laughs> All right. Aww, <laughs> Thank you, everybody out there for listening to us. Lori will be back next week at the same time. Bye-bye, everybody. Gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There's no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.